Our gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the power of your word that penetrates our hearts. And Lord, I pray that it would accomplish its work in us this morning. Let your spirit just uh, have its way with us. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen. We moved here just about a year ago, as Bill said, from the Lake Tahoe area. And I can recall one day at Lake Tahoe where we were sitting on the beach and we were watching the Tahoe Queen, which is a huge paddle wheeler on Lake Tahoe that goes out and it was carrying about 500 passengers. And as it began to pull out, there was a powerful crosswind blowing. It began to move out and the wind began to blow and that huge stable ship, or what you would think was stable, began to slip sideways and ran aground on a sandbar near there. And they spent hours trying to get it free. They had to unload all the passengers and they used, uh, even drove a truck out on the sandbar to try to help push it off and all kinds of things. They finally did get it free. But at that same time, my friend Leonard runs a charter business, fishing business, and his boat, a much smaller boat, much less stable, was sitting out in the water just a few feet from some rocks, bigger than this pulpit, huge rocks, and the wind was blowing it directly towards those rocks. But that boat didn't crash. It just bobbed out in the water. In fact, that winter was the one of the harshest winters on record in Tahoe, and yet that boat continued to stay there without being crushed on the rocks. Why? Well, you might guess. It's because it was anchored to the rocks under the water that held it firm in the midst of the storm. Well, see, we all face storms in life, don't we? The winds blow and things happen that threaten us, threaten to crush us on the rocks. We can't avoid the storms and the winds that blow. For you, maybe the storms that you're experiencing now might be some financial struggles, that you just can't seem to get on top of it, and every month the bills come and you struggle and struggle and struggle to make ends meet. Or maybe you're out of a job. Maybe your struggles are with the pressures you have at work and the kind of people you work with and you have conflicts and you and you just don't know how to deal with the winds that blow there. Maybe the storms you, you face have to deal more with family issues and the relationships there and the struggles you have with trying to deal with rebellious children or maybe parents that just don't understand. Or maybe a conflict uh, with someone else in the body of Christ even, other Christians that you're divided and you just don't know how to resolve the conflict. Maybe you have physical problems and that's your storm and you struggle and struggle with the fact that your body just can't do what it used to do. It's deteriorating and you struggle with that and you just don't know how to handle that storm and it seems overwhelming at times and it's threatening to throw you into the rocks and crush you. We all face rocks and storms and the difficulties of those. But the question really this morning is, How can we be like my friend's boat? That even though the winds blow, we can be anchored firmly to the rocks beneath so that we won't be crushed. How can we walk through the storms in a way that will allow us to continue to trust the Lord and grow in Him rather than being shipwrecked? 
and somehow become angry and frustrated with the Lord and turn away from Him and just try to survive. That's shipwreck. But the Lord wants so much more for us. He wants a life in which we're working, walking ahead with Him and trusting Him and growing and delighting in Him. Paul wrote the book of Philippians, in large part, I believe, to encourage the Philippians to stand firm in the storms of life. He says that in chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. You see, he longs for them to stand firm, to be firmly anchored in the storms. And the Philippians were going through storms. When Paul came to establish the church, we read about this in the book of Acts, we see that Paul shared Christ and he created a conflict there. Some came to know the Lord. He was arrested, beaten with rods, thrown in jail. God miraculously brought him out, but then he was kicked out of town. And that's where this little church had to establish itself in that place of persecution. And as we read the book of Philippians, we begin to see that there's other storms that they're dealing with as well. There's false teaching going around. And they're having to struggle against that to find the Lord in the midst of that. We also see that there's a major conflict going on in the church there, threatening to divide the church that they can't seem to resolve. There's also the threat of worldliness in the church there. So they were going through plenty of storms themselves. So Paul wrote this book to encourage them, as I just read, to stand firm in the Lord. How do we do that? What are the anchors that we need to drop down onto the rocks that will keep us solid? Well, I believe in the verses right before verse 4, verse 1, in the end of chapter 3, Paul gives us three anchors that will help us to stand firm in the struggles we face, in the winds that blow, in the storms. The first anchor he gives us in verses 15 and 16 of chapter 3 of Philippians. Let me read those to you. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. I think Paul's being sarcastic there a little bit. Paul's just been talking about how he presses on to know the Lord. He's the apostle. And he's saying, I'm not there yet. I'm stretching ahead, pressing on to know the Lord, because that's what's important. And now he says, but now some of you, as many as are perfect, kind of sarcastic here, have this attitude. What attitude? That you haven't arrived, and you still need to press on to seek him. Have this attitude, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have attained. The first anchor that Paul gives us, I believe, is he says, fix your mind on pursuing Christ. Fix your mind on pursuing Christ. Let that be your first anchor. As I said before, in the verses before this, and Chris taught on this last week, Paul is pressing on to know Christ. He's made that his goal. He's given himself as an example. And then in these verses, he says, now you take the same attitude. You choose to press on to know him as well. And the word he uses here in verse 15, in my translation, it says, have this attitude. But really, the word means to set your mind on something. 
So word he uses a little farther down in verse 19, talks about others who set their minds on earthly things. It's a word he uses in Colossians 3, 2, where he says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. This word really means to fix your mind on something in a way that it governs the whole direction of your life. It controls the decisions you make. One commentator said this, the word expresses not merely an activity of the intellect, but also a movement of the will. It is both interest and decision at the same time. Interest in terms of your mind, but also a decision to move forward in one particular direction. That's what it means when he says, set your mind or have this attitude. I have a friend, and I'll call him Bob, that I went to high school with. And he told me in high school, he said, my goal is to be retired by the time I'm 40. That was, his, that was his goal. That's what he set his mind on. So he decided he would do that. He wanted to be a veterinarian. So he went to college, worked hard, got fairly good grades, applied for veterinary school, didn't get in. But he was going to stick to his goal. So he went ahead and took extra classes, took a fifth year of college, even though he'd already graduated, and took what he thought he needed to get in. And uh, I believe it still took him more than a year of classes to finally get accepted into veterinary school. So he became a veterinarian. And he began to build a business. And it began to grow and grow and grow. And he began to expand it to where today he's 37 years old. And from what I understand, he, he has the largest veterinary practice in the Northwest if not in the entire western United States. He's expanded it into where he's supplying pets, uh, supplies, and all kinds of things, along with several clinics. Now, to me, I, uh, I'm worried for him. I wonder what life will be like for him when he turns 40. That's not a worthy goal, is it? Ultimately. But... I admire his determination because he fixed his mind on something and he decided he would go for it and he stuck with it. And he reminds me of what Paul says in the verses above in chapter 3 where he says, I press on towards the goal of attaining Christ and his righteousness. He's so determined that everything else in life All the distractions are set aside so he can complete that goal. You see, I believe that's what Paul's encouraging us to do. That's what will be an anchor for us in life, is if we will fix our minds on the goal of pursuing Christ. To know him, to love him, to walk with him, and let nothing distract us from our relationship with him and knowing him in all that we do. And we are easily distracted, aren't we? Because all of us are naturally idolaters. We all have idols. We all have other things that get in our way. Whether it's money or whatever it it might be or a relationship that distracts us from the goal of knowing Christ. That's why it has to be a daily decision, a daily choice to say, Lord, I want to know you today. I want to pursue you today in the midst of work and in the midst of housework and in the midst of classes and studying and whatever you end up doing 
to pursue Christ in the center of that is what he calls us to. I had the privilege of going to Israel in this spring with uh, some other pastoral friends, and we just had a wonderful time. But our last week, we were in Galilee, and we decided we would study the book of Mark and just follow in Jesus' footsteps. So every day, we would get up and we'd study the word, and then we would say, where did Jesus walk? Let's follow that. Let's walk where he walked. And we learned some wonderful things, just seeing where he was and where he went and where he walked and how he walked. And that's a good picture of what we are to be doing as Christians every day. Lord, I want to walk with you today. I want to walk in your steps. I want to pursue you today, daily. Just a note in verse 15, Paul says, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. And if in anything you differ, God will reveal that to you. I love that taste of grace there. You see, when people differ, our tendency is to want to hammer them until they agree with us. But Paul extends grace to them. And what could be more important than pursuing Christ? That's the center of our whole faith. And yet he still says, if you have a different attitude, if your mind is set somewhere else, I'm trusting God to reveal that to you. If you are his, he'll bring you around. What a lovely taste of grace he gives. Let me encourage you this morning. This is our first anchor. is to set our minds on pursuing Christ. And maybe a good question to ask yourself is, what is it that you really can't live without? What is it that when you think of losing, it sounds like you would be crushed on the rocks? Maybe that's a good indication of what it is you're truly pursuing in life other than the Lord himself. Well, that's the first anchor that he gives us. Fix your mind on pursuing Christ. Secondly, he tells us in verses 17 through 19 is to fix your eyes on the godly examples around you who are pursuing Christ. Fix your eyes on godly examples. Let me read those verses, 17 through 19. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. These are strong words Paul uses here. But I believe he's talking about Christians, people who are in the church, who are somehow not pursuing Christ first. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Verse 17 He says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern that you have in us. Observe, watch. I read recently about an NCAA cross-country championship meet that occurred a few years ago in in Riverside, California. And in this race, there were 128 runners and 123 went the wrong way. (laughs) And one man was running, and he saw they they were going starting to go the wrong way, and so he started going the right way, and he started yelling and calling for them to follow him. Come this way. He could only convince four others to follow him. Only those five finished the race correctly. And what Paul is saying here is, look for those who are on the narrow path, because most are going a little off. Most are not quite on the right path, 
But he says, observe those who are walking according to the pattern you have in us. The word he uses there for observe is a word that, uh, it's where we get our English word scope, as in to scope out, to look at closely. It's where we get our word microscope or telescope, which are instruments we use to look at something intently, to study it and observe it. And he says, that's what you should do with godly examples around you. Find people who are on the right path, who you sense are not just being religious, are not just playing the Christian game, but really living for themselves ultimately. But find people who are truly pursuing Christ because they want to know him and love him and follow him. And he says, watch them. Learn from them. Observe them. Seek them out. A couple I know, their names are Don and Kay, are the ones I think of when I read this. They're an older couple, and uh, he happened to be my wife's high school counselor years ago. And he would share the Lord with her, and she was not a believer, and she didn't hear any of it. (laughs) But she loved being around him. So she did whatever she could to be in his office. She spent her free hours there. She would work in his office. There was something about his life that just attracted her to him. Later, when in college, she did come to the Lord. They spent... Uh, he and his wife spent time with her and, and ministered to her, and they would sit together in church and encourage each other. And then later, when I came in the picture, I began to get to know them. They moved away, we moved away. But over the years, we have regularly tried to find wherever they are and spend time with them. Now, this couple is a couple that has had a hard life. Let me just give you some examples. Kay is someone who now... They had to move to the coast because her diaphragm's paralyzed. She can't breathe at any higher altitude. She has to sleep with a machine that helps her breathe at night because she can't breathe on her own. She has to stay away from people, anybody else other than her husband, seven months out of the year. She can't go to church. She can't go shopping. She can't do anything because if she were to catch a virus, it would be devastating for her. She has a hard time walking. Her spine is collapsing. Don has had, they've had financial problems, so Don has had to work construction even after retirement from the school district, and he's had a number of injuries trying to work construction. And yet this couple, to me, is a couple that exemplifies someone who's pursuing Christ. As I've gone there over the years to visit, in the midst of ministry, and I'm always struggling with something, it seems like, this church isn't quite like I'd like it to be, or this relationship isn't working out. And and I always go, and, and they're willing to listen and, and hear my complaining, but they never quite really empathize. And as they begin to minister to me and begin to just share their walk with the Lord, every time I leave them, I have an attitude of, and a sense of, I want to know you, Lord, like they do. All of a sudden, my problems don't really matter. You see, they create in me a hunger to want to know the Lord like them. And that's always my prayer. Lord, I want to know you like they do. Oh, Lord, I want to know you like them. We need to look for people like that who are pursuing Christ, who don't let the waves around us and the storms 
sidetrack us, but who are truly keep focused on pursuing him. And let those people be examples to you. Watch them, Paul says. Learn from them. And don't be distracted. More is, as Howard Hendricks likes to say, more is caught than taught. Be around these kinds of people. Learn from them. Because he says, most of us, and notice what he says in verse 18, for many walk in another way. Few walk that narrow path. Many, he says, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What does he mean here? How can a Christian be an enemy of the cross of Christ? Those are powerful words. Those are harsh. Well, here's what John Stott in his book, The Cross of Christ, says. If the cross is not central for us, then we deserve to have applied to us that most terrible of all descriptions, enemies of the cross of Christ. To be an enemy of the cross is to set ourselves against its purposes. Self-righteousness instead of looking to the cross for justification. Self-indulgence instead of taking up the cross to follow Christ. Self-advertisement instead of preaching Christ crucified. And self-glorification instead of glorying in the cross. These are the distortions which make us enemies of Christ's cross. You see, to live as an enemy of Christ's cross is to live as though the cross really doesn't matter. That somehow Jesus dying for me really doesn't matter in my life day to day. Oh, it's nice because it promises me heaven. So I've got my ticket into heaven. Thank you, Lord, for dying for me. But day to day, it really doesn't matter. So I've got to live to be happy here and fulfilled and be comfortable and make life easy because the cross really doesn't matter. That's what Paul says is living as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Notice the words he uses to describe us when we're that way. Whose end is destruction. I think what he's saying there is he's saying, when you live for things on earth to be okay, and that's where your hope is, that's where your life is, whether it's your business working out right or getting a certain promotion or having a relationship work out or whatever it is, the storms will come And whatever it is, it will be dashed on the rocks. You will lose it. Its end is destruction. Anything the world has to offer will be destroyed. And he says the end, if you're living that way, will be, it will be gone. It will be taken away. Then he says, whose God is their appetite, is my translation. Literally, it's whose God is their belly. You see, we... What he's saying there is that your belly cries out to be satisfied, doesn't it? When you're hungry, your belly lets you know right away. I can think I can hear some stomachs grumbling now. (laughs) Your stomach lets you know right away that I want to be satisfied. You better satisfy me. Fill me. Fill me. And Paul uses that as a picture of our whole physical being, our desires that cry out to be satisfied. And he says, when that becomes your God to fill yourself and satisfy your own physical being with comfort and ease and all, and that becomes your God, then you're an enemy of the cross of Christ. You're living as if the cross doesn't matter. Then he says, whose glory is in their shame. What he means by this is that what should bring shame doesn't. 
In fact, we become, we in a sense, glory in what should bring us shame. Like the man who recently told me, well, life was so awful living with my wife, she drove me to have several affairs. I had to leave her because it was too uncomfortable and life's so much better now. That's someone who glories in his shame. That's an extreme example, but it's an example that I hear over and over again, that somehow it hurts too much. My self cries out to be satisfied, so I've got to do whatever it takes to satisfy it. That's when your God is your belly and your glory is in your shame. And then finally he says, who set their minds, same word as above, fix their minds on earthly things. He says, these are those who somehow think that this world is what will satisfy me. And so what they're fixed upon, like my friend Bob, (laughs) is some kind of earthly satisfaction. Somehow, some way, this world can work for me. But he says when we live that way, we live as though the cross doesn't matter. And we, in essence, become enemies of the cross of Christ. See, because the cross frees us from having to cling to the world. The cross not only gives us the faraway hope of heaven, but it frees us now from the power of worldliness so that we can live for him and not for ourselves. Paul writes in to the book in in the letter to the Galatians in chapter 6 verse 14, but may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which The world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. You see what the power of the cross does? It puts to death that bond that makes us have to be satisfied with the world around us and sets us free to pursue Christ and trust God with our lives. So he says... Don't live as an enemy of the cross of Christ. That's where most people live. But he says, instead, fix your eyes on those who are truly pursuing him and follow them, imitate them. Be like them. Let them be your example. We need other people. We need examples so that we can live on a higher plane and not just survive in the storms of life. We need examples. We need the body. We need one another to be encouraged. One of the ways that I've been encouraged is by reading Christian biographies, the great saints throughout history, the Martin Luthers, the John Calvins, the Augustines, the Jonathan Edwards, the George MacDonalds, the others. I love reading Christian biographies because they give me a picture of someone who truly pursued the Lord, the Hudson Taylors, those who gave their heart to follow him. You see, that can help lead us to a higher plane of walking with him and pursuing him, first and foremost. So let me encourage you to read them, to let those encourage you. So Paul has said to the Philippians, he said, first, fix your mind on pursuing Christ. Secondly, find examples and set your mind, set your eyes on them. 
Watch them and learn from them and imitate them. That can be your second anchor to hold you in the storms of life. The third anchor he gives in verses 20 and 21 where he says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The third anchor he gives us is he says, fix your hope on Christ's return. Fix your hope on Christ's return. You see, there's so many things in life that that are competing with that sense of waiting for him to give us the true fulfillment we all long for. So we begin to scramble and look and set our minds on earthly things and find, try to find something that will satisfy. But Paul says, for us, our real hope is in heaven. When Jesus returns, that's when life will be experienced to its fullest. So, he says, keep your eyes there. Fix your hope there. Don't be like the belly worshipers, but be those who worship Christ and follow him. And remember that this life can never satisfy. I love this phrase he uses in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. We are truly citizens of heaven. Once you are born again, once you ask Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior, then suddenly this world began to fade because it's no longer your home. Our home now is ultimately heaven. Therefore, earth can never really satisfy us because our home is elsewhere. We don't belong here. In Philippi, it was a Roman colony. And so what was important to people there was somehow becoming a Roman citizen. And most people were not. But if they could be a Roman citizen, it gave them status, power, voting rights, protection under the law, all kinds of rights that they could not get without being citizens. And I think Paul's referring to citizenship here because he knows that many of the believers there are probably longing for that or depending on that somehow to make life okay for them. And he says, our citizenship isn't here. It's not even here. One of my students in the Cole Center for Biblical Studies is named Makiko. She's from Japan. She's been here two years studying with us, and now she's having visa, visa problems. She's back in Japan and needs to work that out to come back and study with us for the last year. So I encourage you to pray for her if you think about it, that she could do that. But it always strikes me when I'm around Makiko, she's a wonderful, interested, learning student. And the center has been good for her. But she never quite fits. Because deep down, her home is in Japan. She wants to go through the program so she can be trained to go back and minister in her own country. Here, she's just a trainee. And really, Paul says, we're just trainees here. This isn't home. This is all going to be destroyed. It's going to be gone. How foolish for us to cling to it and try to make our citizenship here. He says, we're citizens of heaven, and that day is coming when we will go to be there, be with the Lord, and he will make all things right. And he says, he will transform our humble bodies and make it glorious like his. I see people working so hard to try to make their bodies here glorious. <laughs> Exercise, diet, 
the right vitamins, etc., etc. We do everything we can to make these bodies last and make them glorious. And what happens? They start falling apart. They disintegrate. I was training this year to run in Roby Creek. I didn't last very long. I got up to about seven miles and my knees started to hurt and I couldn't train anymore and I never made it. You see, these bodies just won't take it. But the power of Christ will be used to transform these bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. So Paul says, fix your hope there. Not here. Not here. It does make life here hard, I know. Because we we have to live with a longing for heaven that's unsatisfied here on earth. And that's uncomfortable. We don't like to live with a sense of longing and desire that's unfulfilled. But that's what God calls us to. I see life here as very similar to engagement. I remember when my wife and I got engaged. It was an exciting time. We were all thrilled and we were looking forward to that day when we would finally be married and be able to truly have the intimacy that we longed for and not have to plan the wedding and go through that uncomfortable time of engagement where you're committed to one another, but you're not really one yet. And that's an uncomfortable time. But that's really what we are called to as Christians on earth. This uncomfortable in-between time where we're not quite with the Lord yet fully. Yes, he's here with us, but we're looking forward, and Paul uses the word eagerly waiting for our Savior. That's what life here is to be. Not scrambling to make life work so that we'll be satisfied here, but eagerly waiting, putting our hope in his return. That will give us an anchor in the midst of the storms that will see us through the difficulties and the waves and the struggles that we have. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, wonderful little sermon, Weight of Glory, says this, You and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing the shy, persistent, inner voice or longing. Almost all our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires for heaven not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. True security in life comes from fixing our anchors on him. We sang earlier that Jesus is our rock. He's what we are to be anchored to. The waves will come. The storms will come. They're unavoidable. You cannot avoid them. But we can find security and strength in the midst of it to keep going on. I began talking about, with, with talking about my friend Leonard, who runs the charter 
company. Imagine the storm, him out on the lake and the storm coming up and him deciding, I've got to do whatever I can to avoid these waves. If you've ever been out on a lake and tried to avoid waves, (laughs) you find pretty quickly you can't. You see, the waves will come. The winds will blow. That's part of life on earth. The only way to handle waves out on the lake, as I understand it, is to head directly into them and to drop your anchor into something solid that will hold you until the storm blows over. And that's exactly what he calls us to do. To not try to avoid the waves. To not try to make life here what heaven is meant to be. But what he calls us to do is drop our anchors onto him. Fix our mind on pursuing him and let nothing distract us. Fix our eyes on those godly examples who can lead us to do that. And then fix our hope on his return because that's where finally life will be all we long for, all it was meant to be. Larry Crabb, in his book, Finding God, has the thesis that we tend to live life using God to solve our problems instead of going through our problems to find God. Let me encourage you to not be those who are enemies of the cross, who try to find life here. But let's encourage one another to be people who truly are pursuing Him and placing our hope in Him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we truly are half-hearted creatures. We are so weak and needy Lord, I confess that uh, that's what I am. I too often live as an enemy of your cross. I try to find a life here in my house or my things or people. Lord, help us to pursue you first. To find life in you and firmly fix ourselves upon the rock that will see us through the storms that we all face. Thank you that you're with us. Thank you that you forgive us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.